This episode of the Trek Geeks podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audio download and a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash trekgeeks and find over 150,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. This is Todd Haberkorn, Mr. Spock on Star Trek Continues, and you're listening to the Trek Geeks podcast with Dan Davidson! And Bill Smith, let's get ready to podcast! Biggest little show this side of the Alpha Quadrant. This is the Trek Geeks Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. I am your co-host, Bill Smith, and I am joined, as I am every episode, by a man who is prohibited from being within 150 feet of me at all times by a court of law. He is the geographically challenged Dan Davidson. Dan, how are you? I am good. Is that still in effect? Uh, uh, n- no. <laughs> no, I thought that we had that all cleared up a while back. Yeah, we just fixed the glitch. Okay, well, all right then. I'm good. How you doing, man? I'm doing great. I um, if you're anything like me, I I think I've watched um, the topic of our episode today at least nine times Ten. since last week. Ten. 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 Well, in case you hadn't guessed from the title of the episode, this is our special breakdown of Star Trek Continues Episode Four, The White Iris. Um, we will tell you at the outset that this is a very spoilerific episode. If you don't want to know what happens in this episode, stop this podcast now. Go right watch now. it um, on either the Star Trek Continues website or YouTube and come back to us and then listen to our breakdown of the episode. Um, we think that you'll enjoy it. Um, I know I enjoyed it, but we'll talk more about that part later. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, yeah. It's uh, we're not we're not people on Facebook that decide to tell you what happened on Game of Thrones tonight without telling you spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Hello. Spoiler <laughs> alert. Thank you. This, Billy did a good job. Thank you. This whole episode is one giant spoiler. Yes. I could say Dan is one giant giant spoiler. Quite honestly. Obviously, you can't because you just screwed that up. So, wow, really? <laughs> really? We have a good time, don't we? Yeah, it's great. I do. <laughs> it's great. Wait till you read the intro I read for you next week. Can't wait. It can't be any better than I put the suck in success. No, it was you put the me in mediocrity. Well, I know, but you were going to use that one. Well, that's true, but I didn't. It was very sad. Those are your words now, not mine. 
Oh, I see how it is. This is what I deal with every day, folks. You think that we just do this podcast like once a week? We talk every day a lot online, and this is what I have to deal with. I just want you all to know the pain that I go through to bring you this podcast along with my co-host, Bill Smith. I'm sorry, the pain that you have to go through to bring people this podcast? You? Yeah, we don't have any fun either. No, no, it's clearly not now. Well, part of today's episode is we're going to go through a comprehensive breakdown, a synopsis of the white iris, and then we're going to talk a bit about our thoughts on the episode, and then we'll probably wrap it up with you know, an overall review, what we thought of it, uh, how it uh, it compares to the other episodes and the, the pantheon of what now is Star Trek continues. Um, but first, we will uh, have Dan regale us with a recap of what happened. Okay. <laughs> I'll be happy to do that. And folks, I got to tell you right up front, if you don't want to hear spoilers, you don't want to listen. If you don't want to hear me for the next 30 minutes and just probably me, you probably don't want to listen either. I'm going to leave that up to you. Lord knows I don't want to hear you. That's why you're going to probably just get up and walk away. See ya. <laughs> <laughs> Prologue. The Enterprise is in orbit around the planet Calcis. Kirk, Scotty, and Uhura are listening to Minister Amphitimus when Kirk is savagely attacked from behind. An inhabitant of Calcis's sister planet, Eritrea, hits Kirk over the head with a large club and yells that the Federation is not welcome. The Enterprise crew calls for an emergency beam out while the Minister looks shocked at the events unfolding. In sickbay, McCoy reports that Kirk, who appears to be in incredible pain, has a massive concussion and swelling in the brain in the area that is responsible for emotional memories. He also advises Spock that the hemorrhaging is terminal. Spock suggests, because we all know that Spock is a doctor, that administering <laughs> Alkazine to reset the captain's nervous system will help with the problem. I almost just spit out my beer. <laughs> McCoy protests as is a highly experimental drug, and while Spock and McCoy argue over the treatment, we see things from Kirk's perspective, and behind his two senior officers, he sees a spectral woman walk past them. This woman is Raina Kopik, the android woman who Kirk fell in love with in the original series episode Requiem for Methuselah. Kirk then sees flashbacks of his encounter with Raina, including the moment that Spock mind-melded with him in order to forget those difficult events. Kirk reaches out to McCoy and insists on administering the Alkazine no matter what happens. Kirk passes out after the hypospray is given, but after a few moments regains consciousness and vital signs all return to normal. Kirk stumbles off the bio bed and promises McCoy that he'll take it easy as he resumes duty and negotiations with the minister. While en route to the bridge, Kirk tells Spock he remembers everything that happened with Reyna. Spock appears surprised at this and advises the captain he did what he felt was needed to spare the captain pain. On the bridge, the minister is on the view screen and apologizes for the incident and is thankful that Kirk appears okay. He advises that the sister planet is planning on attacking Calcis and wants to continue the process of setting up the, quote, planetary defense grid the Federation is providing. In order to activate the device, the passcode must be provided by Kirk, but he can't remember what it is. As Kirk struggles to remember the passcode, he sees another spectral woman standing on the bridge, staring at him. 
He is obviously shocked at seeing this woman, and it's evident as the screen fades to black. He doesn't have the password on, like, a USB key? No. Okay. Sorry. Okay. Do you want to sing the opening sequence, too, Bill, while we're at it? No, no, I'm good. Okay. We'll just skip to act one, then. (laughs) (laughs) So, the crew is watching Kirk as he continues to hesitate while staring at this spectral woman. Spock advises the minister he'd like a moment and closes the channel. Kirk tells Spock he doesn't remember the password. When Spock suggests contacting Starfleet Command to obtain it, Kirk reveals that it will be his final decision on whether to allow Calcis into the Federation, and as a result, he is the only person who knows what that password is, because, yeah, that's a good idea. The only one? They don't have, like, a database with encryption. I, I, they don't have that at Memory Alpha, for God's sake. I, I, Kirk sees the woman again and appears dismayed. <laughs> uh, Spook, Spock, Spook, Spook. Spock, looks in, <laughs> Spock looks in the direction Kirk is staring at, but sees nothing. Spock suggests that the treatment may have some unintended side effects, and Kirk agrees to this, so he heads to sickbay while Spock looks very concerned. When Kirk leaves the bridge, Spock has Lieutenant Palmer contact Starfleet about a replacement device and then asks Chekhov about his experience with cryptography, which goes to the point you just made a minute ago. So obviously they do have cryptography or whatever. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Chekhov starts to tell a story about how he once decrypted a Zindi message, which I thought was a great Enterprise continuity reference. But Spock interrupts him and advises him and Scotty to get to engineering and see if they can break into the device and reinitialize it. While walking the corridor to sickbay, Kirk sees a young girl standing there and watching him. As he starts to move towards her, she runs away. When Kirk gets to the corridor intersection, she is nowhere to be found. He enters a turbo lift, headed to sickbay, when the woman from the bridge appears again and calls him by name. As he starts to respond, the turbo lift doors and two crewmen enter. The woman is gone. Dun, dun, dun. Thank you. I was hoping for that. <laughs> On the bridge, sensors show a nuclear missile has been launched from Eritrea heading for Calcis, with detonation less than two hours away. Minister Amphitimus contacts the Enterprise in a panic state, asking for Kirk so he can activate the defense grid. Spock advises that the captain is is not available due to the attack on Calcis and will keep the minister informed and abruptly closes the channel. I do have to apologize. My phone uh, email sound is the Enterprise Turbo Lift doors, and I just happened to get an email. I forgot to uh, Did you get an email from Spook? (laughs) Yes. Oh, this is fun. Okay. Back to the episode. Yeah. What happened in In sickbay? In sickbay, <laughs> McCoy is scanning Kirk, and they discuss the attack. McCoy tells Kirk that Spock discussed the events on the bridge, as well as the unlocking of the Reina suppressed memory, which annoys Kirk greatly. Chapel hands McCoy the results of Kirk's scans, and it appears that Kirk's heart tissue is shutting down, which seems impossible, according to McCoy. Kirk looks over at the other biobed and sees the woman from the bridge, again looking concerned. Act 2. McCoy, through his medical log, explains that he has no idea what is causing the captain's heart problem, and he's at the end of his medical expertise to find the cause or a cure. 
In engineering, Scotty and Chekhov advise Spock that they are making no progress on resetting the defense grid unit. Chekhov explains that he can keep trying, but it would take days. That is, if the device doesn't automatically deactivate due to multiple attempts to access it, which is apparently Starfleet protocol, unlike backing up your password. Back in sickbay, McCoy explains the scans show localized heart failure, but the heart tissue doesn't even appear to be damaged. It's just atrophying. Kirk is more concerned with who he saw in the biobed and whom McCoy didn't see and explains to him who she was. Her name was Nakia and they served together on the Farragut. She died years earlier along with 200 other crew crew members when the cloud vampire attacked the ship when orbiting Tycho 4. Another great reference, by the way, this time to the original series episode Obsession. McCoy tells Kirk that maybe it's time he talked to the ship's counselor, Dr. McKenna which Kirk has no intention of doing, of course. Spock arrives in sickbay and concurs with McCoy that Kirk should talk to McKenna. Kirk accuses both men of ganging up on him, and then, of course, he heads to the bridge. Spock follows Kirk in an attempt to talk some sense into him. In the corridor, Kirk argues the reason everything is happening is because of the Alcazine. As Spock attempts to continue the discussion, Kirk looks down the hall and sees a third spectral woman. It is Edith Keeler from, of course... Cody off that great episode. Excuse me, Bill. Yeah, that's a that's an abbreviation for City on the Edge of Forever. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. What? <laughs> Remember that one? What, the carry on from, of course, City on the Edge of Forever. I knew that. She talks. <laughs> she talks to Kirk, quoting two lines from when they spent time in 1930s New York. You know, before he let her die to return the timeline to normal. Yeah, I remember that part too. Kirk has had an attack of some kind, grabs his chest and falls against the wall. Spock attempts to assist, but Kirk insists he's fine and heads to the bridge while Spock stands idly by and does nothing. Back on the bridge, Uhura advises that a replacement defense unit is four days away. Lieutenant Smith announces that the missile has increased velocity and will strike Calcis in 59 minutes. Sulu orders phasers to stand by, but weapons lock fails and the sensors lose the missile. Act 3. Spock, McCoy, and Dr. McKenna are in the briefing room watching the events of Kirk's attack on Calcis. While discussing the possible causes of Kirk's hallucinations and heart issues, Kirk walks in and appears not happy with Spock and McCoy for dragging McKenna into the situation. He dismisses her and asks Spock for a status report. While Spock is explaining that the attempts to activate the defense grid continue to fail and missile impact is less than an hour away, Kirk sees yet another spectral woman. This time, it's Maramani, whom he married when he lost his memory and became Kirok. I am Kirok! In the Paradise Syndrome. That was very good, Bill, by the way. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. He tries to ignore what he's seeing and repeats his questions, which Spock and McCoy notice as out of the ordinary and another example of the symptoms that he's been having. Miramani calls to Kirk. He gets up from the table and starts to walk towards her and has yet another wave of pain in his chest. McCoy threatens to relieve Kirk of command if he doesn't let them help, but once again Kirk ignores the threat and heads off to the bridge. When exiting the briefing room, Kirk sees that little girl in the corridor again. He calls to her, but she runs off. Kirk pursues only to be stopped dead in his tracks when Edith Keeler appears in front of him again in front of the turbo lift. He turns away and runs into a crewman. Confused and apologetic, 
he heads towards the bridge again. He seems to be heading to the bridge a lot. What? what he could just stay there? Yeah. But that would cut out like half the episode. That's true. Okay. Well, back in the briefing room, Spock and McCoy discuss the captain's issues. Reports indicate that Alkazine injections have never shown side effects of hallucinations. So they discuss things about seeing ghosts, and Spock feels that it is possible that the captain may very well be seeing Katras. And when the doctor guffaws at that idea, he reminds the doctor that the Vulcans are deeply spiritual people. McCoy appears stunned, but wonders if Spock may be right. Bill, can you make a guffaw sound for me? Um, I don't even know if I can make a chortle. I'd let okay. alone a guffaw. Well, chortles, aren't they cinnamon and, and dough? <laughs> Chocolate sometimes. Yeah, yeah. You get them on street right. carts in LA. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's it. Okay, back to we go. All right. Kirk arrives on the bridge in obvious discomfort and advises the crew to prepare to destroy the missile without even having a phaser lock. Smith and Sulu realize that if the missile is venting drive plasma, it could be the reason for the targeting sensor malfunctions. Spock advises to send a charged particle burst through the deflector dish to ignite the plasma from the missile. Kirk orders Sulu to proceed. The particle burst acquires the target, and the crew waits for the order to fire. But Kirk is transfixed on the image of Nakia standing on the bridge talking to him, and he again has a wave of chest pains. As several crew members try to get his attention about the phaser lock, he also sees Miramani and is unable to reply to anyone. Spock finally orders Sulu to fire phasers, and the missile is destroyed, but Kirk is oblivious to this because now Edith Keeler's on the bridge. All three are calling to him, and this is just too much for him to handle. He jumps to his feet and starts yelling out that he did the best he could, he can't change the pass, and he finally screams out, What do you want from me? as the crew looks at him in shock. He realizes what has just happened, and he relinquishes command of the Enterprise to Spock. In his quarters, Kirk is lying on his bunk when McCoy arrives with a brandy, another great reference to the Pike-Piper scene from the cage. As Kirk drinks, McCoy scans him, which irritates Kirk a little bit, and McCoy pleads with him to let people help and that he's not alone, to which Kirk replies, really? He claims that duty has always had to come first, and it comes with a price. He asks McCoy if he thinks that he loved those women, and McCoy makes a joke that he thinks Kirk loved a lot of women, and Kirk bristles at that comment and drops his drink. Tuck and roll. <laughs> he explains that he loved those women and has never been able to rid himself of the guilt for their deaths. He tells Bones that command doesn't allow for such indulgences, and then Nakia appears again. The biggest attack yet hits him just as Spock arrives. He carries Kirk over to the bunk and begins a mind melt. He looks up and sees Edith, Miramani, and Nakia standing in the room. Act 4. Spock asks the women what they want with the captain as McCoy tries to understand what is going on. Spock breaks the mind meld as Kirk catches his breath, and Spock then admits that he saw the women. He also says that the women need resolution, peace, and closure. McCoy is confused because they're already dead, but Kirk realizes something in order Spock to have the defense console beam to the planet and that he will be on the bridge shortly. What is it with the bridge? Dr. McKenna is in her quarters, out of uniform relaxing when Kirk arrives and finally wants to talk. She seems surprised, but happy to see him. Kirk is distraught that he actually gave up command over his condition. She tries to help by saying command requires certain sacrifices, 
but he gets upset and states that those women died because of him. He says Spock claims they need closure, but McKenna disagrees. It's Kirk who needs the closure because he's been hiding these feelings and they're paralyzing him. His guilt at never being able to explain his actions to these women are the cause of his problem. Kirk doesn't know how to proceed, so McKenna says to invite them to come to him in the last place he was with them. And now Kirk realizes what he must do. In the holodeck, Kirk calls up 1930s New York and Edith appears as well. She's confused because she saw him stop McCoy from saving her life. Kirk explains why he had to do what he did, and she understands and tells him to be at peace. Meanwhile, back on the bridge, Lieutenant Smith reads 23 tricobalt warheads launched from Eritrea. Using weapons to destroy the missiles would cause subspace rifts, and tractor beams will only affect a couple of the missiles. Spock requests a channel be opened to the minister. Back in the holodeck, Kirk calls up the simulation of the USS Farragut. Nakia is in sickbay, and she is dying. Kirk tells her he feels what happened to her and the crew was his fault. She says she knew the risks when joining Starfleet, but if she hadn't, they would never have met. He asks for her forgiveness, but she says there's nothing to forgive, and he should let go of his guilt. The defense grid device is being backed down to Calcis as the minister contacts the ship. He's less than responsive to Spock as he explains the device has been beamed down. Without that passcode, it's a useless piece of machinery, and both men are very concerned. Back in the holodeck, Kirk is with Miramani as she lays dying from her injuries. He tells her that he wishes he had stayed because he had never been so happy in his whole life. She tells him to stop torturing himself, and they kiss. She says, as she did when she died the first time, that each kiss is as the first. She fades away and Kirk is alone. The holodeck simulation ends and Kirk turns to see Raina standing near him. He starts to say something, but Raina puts a finger up to stop him and simply smiles. Kirk smiles back and she fades away too. Spock contacts Kirk and advises that the missiles will strike the planet within minutes. Kirk is still unable to remember the password and Spock advises moving the Enterprise to a safe distance, but Kirk tells him no and instead to move the ship into the path of the missiles and divert all available power to the shields. This will only stop some of the missiles, but it is the best option at the moment. As the Enterprise moves into position, Kirk is en route to the bridge and sees that young girl in the corridor again. She runs off, but he goes after her, and this time she doesn't disappear. He walks towards her. She holds out her hand, saying that she made something for him. It is a piece of headband similar to what Maramani wore. Which, and that during this scene, it's great use of the music from Paradise Syndrome. Kirk asks what her name is, and her reply is, you never gave me one. It's at that moment that Kirk realizes that this girl is his and Miramani's child. He kneels down to her, says he wishes he could have given her so much more, but that she lives with him every day in his heart. She smiles and hugs him, and as they continue to hug, she whispers irises in his ear. Kirk realizes why he's saying this, and he smiles and hugs her harder as she fades away as well. The missiles head towards Calcis, but are destroyed by the now online planetary defense grid. Kirk takes over command of the ship from Spock, who states he is relieved, obviously in more than one way. And Minister Amphidamus thanks the captain for his help and announces that once the shield was in place, the Eritreans requested formal peace negotiations. 
Kirk welcomes Kalsis to the United Federation of Planets as McCoy and McKenna enter the bridge. McKenna thanks the captain for approving her request for an office. He's happy to do it as he now realizes the need for a ship's counselor. McCoy talks about how he never would have guessed the password to be Iris's as he stands off at Spock's science station. Not knowing how Kirk would have come up with Iris's as a password, Spock tells McCoy that he did a library search and discovered a Van Gogh painting called Iris's. Only one of the Iris's in the painting is white, and McCoy asks why Van Gogh would have done that. Spock responds that, quote, it is said it is because he was lonely. Both McCoy and Spock look back at their friends sitting in the command chair and understand. Finally, McCoy asks Jim how he's feeling, and Kirk says he feels fine. He understands now when people say that when you lose someone, they take a, they take a piece of your heart with them. McCoy agrees and says that one last piece of his heart, the one that refused to give up, belongs to one very special lady. Kirk smiles as he understands what bone, Bones means, and so do we as the camera pulls back from the saucer section with the words USS Enterprise filling the screen as she heads off to her next adventure. Dan, thank you for putting together a fantastic recap of the episode. That was well done, sir. Well, it was well done because you helped me with it, pal. <laughs> Couldn't have done it without you, man. That was Thanks, great. Man. I think you that... never gave me one. Oh my god! <laughs> you have issues. <laughs> I think that um, I think that you'll agree that this episode is a fantastic examination on not only the burdens of command, but also on love and loss. Two things that that weigh very heavily on Kirk as the central figure in this episode. Yeah. um, You and I talked after we had Vic on the show a few weeks back, and he had a couple of of hints as to what was going on and what the episode was going to be like. And after we talked with Vic, you and I were talking, and we said to each other, what do you think is going to happen? And I said, well, you know – one of the things that I've always thought is that Kirk is a very lonely man. Yeah. I think that he is not the womanizer that everybody thinks he is and that because he is in command of a starship, he has a very lonely life. And this episode multiplied that feeling for me by about a thousand. Well, let's be honest. Kirk didn't become love him and leave him Kirk really until season three. You know, at that point, you know, Fred Freiberger had taken over – you know, as executive producer for the most part. And it was kind of a different show in a sense. Some of the episodes were, were different. The stories were different. Some of them weren't as thought provoking. They were more alien of the week. And I think that that crept in maybe as sort of a, as a, I don't know, maybe to drive viewership. I'm not sure. Yeah. It's it's hard to know. It definitely, you know, it, it explains that, you know, I think it's a great, foretelling of the scene in Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, probably one of the best sequences in in that movie, where Kirk says he needs his pain. And I think we finally understand what that pain is. It's not just the guilt of the lives lost. It's the the loneliness of of being captain. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, uh, it's, I mean, we, I've seen it 10 times now and we just talked about it and the whole time we're talking about it, I can see every scene in my head. 
it's very it's 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 a great episode. It's such an emotion driven episode, but you can't help but feel really bad for the guy. I mean, I feel miserable for him. I yeah, I do too. And I don't know what it is about Kirk when he's vulnerable, but he kind of turns into Kirk the jerk. <laughs> I knew that was coming. (laughs) It's (laughs) well, think of like the deadly years. You know, everything is an attack against him, and (laughs) that I mean, this treatment of the Kirk character is very true to that. Kirk does not like being vulnerable. You know, he he doesn't like you know his facade being chipped away at, and I think the most I don't know I don't know if this is true for you, but the most painful scene to me was when he relinquishes command of the Enterprise. Yeah, the way that he walks, the way that he tries to hold himself up as he as he leaves the bridge. Uh, again, you can't you can't give Vic enough credit for how he does it. Um, but it's it's it, the the strength of that scene with how he gives command over and then kind of walks over to the turbo lift in a way that you know he's really struggling with it. Uh, like you said, perfect example of of how. Uh, powerful this episode is. Well, and not just that scene too, but the scene where Kirk goes to McKenna's quarters and McKenna lays Kirk's guilt right before him and says, you know, you're the one who needs closure. It's a Mm -hmm. truly beautiful moment and you can see the wave of emotion come over Kirk and Vic as she says this to him. And it's painfully obvious to both the viewer and to Kirk that that's 100% true, that the closure isn't on the part of the spectral women, as you as you mm-hmm. coined them. It's his, and it's yeah. his problem. Right. <clears throat> the other thing that I liked about it is, on the other side of the spectrum, is when you, when you see these emotional, sad scenes, you brought it up a minute ago, when he's pissed, he, he really does a great job of snapping at someone or making a comment that's really, you know, kind of hurtful. I mean, he does it to McCoy. Uh, he does it to Spock. He does it to McKenna a little bit too, I think. Um, but uh, again, another great job by Vic and, and having to having to deal with this this conflux of emotions through this episode. Um, he did a great job, and it really shows the Kirk character uh, in all its best slash worst moments, all in one episode. It really does. You know that um, that scene with McCoy and Kirk and the brandy that you brought up being evocative of the cage for me was evocative of the wrath of Khan when McCoy shows up at Kirk's apartment at the beginning of the movie and they, uh, he gives him the, the eyeglasses, yep. you know, and he talks about, you know, how Kirk wants to be out there, you know, hopping galaxies, hopping galaxies. instead of flying a computer console. Yep. And for me that the scene in the white Iris was, was very evocative of that feeling. And mm-hmm. also the feeling later on in the turbo lift, you know, when McCoy says it, it never rains, but it pours and Kirk shoots him back a look and says, you, you know, of all people should know the danger of, you know, reopening old wounds. Yep. Um, I think it's, it, it's a very nice continuation of that dynamic as, as retcon to a degree. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. think that it fits well. I think it fits very well. I think it also, um, we should point out that um, this is the first episode that we've seen with Chuck Huber as McCoy. We did no. see him in episode three. Uh, obviously, um, uh, in the mirror universe. Right. Um, but this is the first one that he really had a lot going on. He did a great job as McCoy in having to deal with that combativeness that he had with Kirk at times, but at the same time also being there 
for support when he needed. I thought that the when he made the comment about basically Jim slept around, the look on Kirk's face and then like the total oops, I just really screwed up look on on McCoy's face. It was, it was a good job by Chuck to handle that scene the way he did. I think so too. I think that these scenes with Kirk and Bones in this episode were really good and I think they rival the best ones in the original series with how they're structured. You know, McCoy gets to be that, um, you know, consigliere of sorts to Kirk at times, you know, a sort of a, a morality and sanity check. Sometimes things that Spock can't provide, you know, as part of that triumvirate. And I thought that, that Chuck handled those scenes amazingly well. I agree. Yeah. It was, it was good to see, um, because we've seen Larry as McCoy in the first two episodes, and 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 we enjoyed Larry. We've spoken with Larry, and like I said, episode three there wasn't really a lot going on from a sick bay side of things. He was kind of being the torture device with uh, with a couple of scenes, but this was a real first time, other than the vignettes from way back before the episodes came out, that we really get to see Chuck doing what he does well as McCoy. Um, and I'm I personally am looking forward to seeing more of him in future episodes because he really pulled this one off. He 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 had some humor. Um, he had some wisecracks with Jim about taking over his practice. He even worked in some of that southern drawl in a couple of scenes and the way that he <laughs> talked. Um, all I mean, everyone as always with Star Trek continues did a good job, but. Um, Vic, of course, is on a pedestal by himself with this episode, but right there, Chuck, Chuck is right there as probably one of the, uh, uh, best performances of this episode by the entire, by the cast as a whole. Well, and I think Todd's right there too. There's a, an interesting yep. discussion on science and spirit in the scene with mm-hmm. McCoy and Spock in the briefing room. And McCoy says, and here I thought Vulcans were people of science and Spock replies to be a people of science is to acknowledge that sometimes science points to something more. Vulcans are also a people of spirit. The two are not as contradictory as they might seem. And now, for me, I thought this was an interesting exchange given the whole Roddenberry philosophy. Um, The more spiritual side of Vulcans wasn't really explored until the movies. And and even then, there were things that were hinted at in the original series, but it was never as necessarily in-your-face, we're a spiritual people as the original series, or during the original series, I mean. Right, and 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 you, I think you really hit it on the head. On the head, it didn't really come out until the movies. But I will say, even with knowing that it did come out in the movies, this one really did come right in your face the way that Spock brought it. I did not expect that dialogue. That was one of the surprise moments of this episode. Where I was like, "Really, Spock is going down that road?" But it worked. It worked really well. I was surprised that Spock, who relies on logic and science was willing to admit that there was something more than that um, because he often doesn't understand the hunches or the gut feelings that humans have, yet the Vulcans have some kind of faith. And whether it's in a deity or not, that's a, a separate discussion for another time, and that's not really what we're talking about during this this episode of the podcast. But it's interesting that he, he said that there is sometimes something more. And that made me go, really? Wow. I thought that was I thought that was bold in this episode. Um, I, I thought it was not really a risk, but I thought it added a dimension to the Spock character and to all Vulcans that we were not treated to in the original series. Yeah, I agree. I, I have one question, um, and it's because um, I've seen it ten times, and I can't think of it right now. Did he actually use the word Katra in that scene, or was that just me in my notes? Um, I think it was me in my notes. No, I actually do think he used it. Okay, if he did, that's 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 
that's really a strong moment, I think, if, if he did. I'm going to have to go back and double-check it. But uh, um, it's, it's hard to think of times in the original series where something like this happened. I will say, did it not occur a lot more in Enterprise? Where they would talk, be talking about the spiritual side of things a lot more. Um, I don't know that it happened a lot more, but it probably happened more openly. I mean, if you look at the fact that Roddenberry himself was a secular humanist, it's easy to see why a discussion about you know a Vulcan spirituality didn't necessarily occur, given the time that the original series was broadcast during, and during the his own general mindset. You know, it was amazing that we yeah. got a deeply spiritual and religious people in Deep Space Nine mm-hmm. without, yeah. you know, people, you know, bringing torches and pitchforks to Paramount. Right, right. Um, well said. Well said, sir. I'll tell you <laughs> what. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to be right back, and we're going to talk about some specific things that we wanted to talk about with this episode. Uh, right after this uh, quick message for the Trekking Podcast. <laughs> Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to listeners of the Trek Geeks podcast so you can check out their service. You can select your free audiobook from over 150,000 titles in Audible's library. And if you're interested in Star Trek titles, you might even check out one of these currently available on audible.com. Imzadi, Spectre, The Return, Sarek, and my favorite, The Eugenics Wars, The Rise and Fall of Khan Noonien Singh. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash trekgeeks. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekgeeks for your free audiobook. And we would like to thank audible.com for sponsoring our episode. Dan, I have to say the casting of the Edith Keeler, the Miramani, and the Reina characters was just fantastic. Those actresses actually look like their 60s counterparts, and I thought it provided some fantastic continuity. You're on mute. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> and um, uh, costumes, uh, hair, everything—it was really good. The only thing that I was like, "Oh, that's too bad," is I felt I felt bad for the girl who played Reina uh, because she looked just like the actress from the original series episode. Um, she didn't get to say a word. I mean, what she did spoke volumes, quote unquote, but she didn't get to say anything. Right. I thought that that was a little different, too. There, there's probably a valid reason. Maybe yeah. it's just the continuation of the fact that Reyna wasn't human and therefore mm-hmm. didn't really feel the same way that we did. I'm not really sure, but um, I still thought it was a nice scene overall. Yes, very nice scene. Um, just the, you know, just the finger up. It was it was it was good. Uh, there, there are so many different parts of this episode that have emotional uh, undercurrents. And that was that was certainly one of them. Um, but you talked about cast, um, and one of the things that I wanted to talk about in regards to the episode was the regular cast. Um, first off, I got to say, Vic, uh, that's his best job as Kirk to date. I yeah. think by far and away, um, he just had a roller coaster of emotion, um, and it was top notch. I, I can only assume how draining it must have been for him as an actor to have to build up all those emotions and portray them 
as effectively as he did throughout the episode because it wasn't just like one scene where he was this way and then the next scene he was this way and he could probably take a break and build up to be whatever emotion he had to work on for that next scene. It was in continuous scenes where the roller coaster was just up and down and and uh, I got to hand it to Vic. That was a that was a great performance. Well, and I think it also speaks to the pacing and the editing of the episode too because there weren't noticeable gaps of that energy and that performance, mm-hmm. it all flowed sort of as one contiguous range of emotion. And I think that, you know, both from a directorial standpoint and an editing standpoint, um, it was just top notch all around. Yeah, it was, it was great. I think the other thing, uh, the other person I wanted to, to bring up in addition to Vic, Michelle Speck, I think I love her. <laughs> this was by far her biggest episode. And, Although I loved the one scene that she had in Ferris of the Mall, it was the only scene in that episode with her. So I like to see her in in, uh, in each episode, and she was fantastic in The White Iris. And I look forward to future episodes with her. Um, and the end of this episode, Bill, also hinted at her new office. So I'm thinking another Kirk starter's on the horizon just for McKenna's office. <laughs> <laughs> that could very well be. I, um, you know, I have to say I'm glad that that character – of Dr. McKenna is adding that that texture in the building of uh, of other characters. You know, uh, back during the original series, they mentioned McCoy was an expert in psychology, and in particular, space psychology. But that was really a thread that only served them for one episode, really. Right. And I'm glad that in continues, we're sort of getting, you know, uh, an expansion of that and, and sort of that, that need taken a little more seriously like it is in, say, TNG with this quote-unquote pilot program yep no i agree uh not much more i can say because you just said it um yeah absolutely agree um we talked a little bit about the nice salutes to the original series episodes uh during our recap paradise syndrome city on the edge of forever or what did you call it see i don't even know what it was so i won't even bring it back up Uh, (laughs) see it off or something like that cody off what Uh, you wrote (laughs) a requiem from methuselah and obsession I I was like giddy when Chekhov brought up the Zindi that he had once decrypted a Zindi message. That shows that level of detail that Vic and his team have for the um continuity factor even for something that's not TOS. I mean, everybody knows Enterprise took place beforehand, but they brought up the Zindi. I thought that was really cool. Especially when you consider that he didn't you know, he's not really a fan per se, right? or as big a fan of the other series as he is TOS. I thought it was yep. a nice nod to, you know, the retcon that mm-hmm. that that Paramount and Rick Berman did. Um, and I thought it fit rather well. Um, it's kind of nice to to have some kind of passing mention of the Zindi. Yeah. <laughs> Since I wasn't a it wasn't a great storyline, <laughs> but it was good to see that they brought it up a little bit. No, I agree with that. I agree yeah. with that entirely. I think though that my favorite scene of the episode or one of my favorite scenes, um, it's kind of a toss up was that scene with Kirk and bones when Kirk was in his quarters. Uh, I instantly thought of the scene in the cage where Piper poured captain Pike a martini. And I thought that that reference was great. And both guys blew it out of the box with the, the acting in that scene. It was really, really powerful. Um, it was a great way to show the relationship between, uh, Kirk and McCoy. Um, 
I think the 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 thing that I like best about it, because we talked to Vic about this, or he, he hinted at it a little bit in our interview with him, is Kirk's reaction to McCoy's off-color joke about Kirk being kind of a man whore really showed how Vic and people like you and me have never liked that reputation that Kirk has had. Right. Yeah, right. I thought that was that was really good. Um I think you brought this up at one point is I really like the continuity uh, the subtle continuity reference about Vulcans not liking to be touched. Yeah. There's that one scene where Scotty grabs Spock's shoulder to say something. And just that tiny half a second look on Todd's face as Spock when he just kind of looked back at his shoulder being like, dude, don't touch me. I thought that was really cool. I want to go back to the scene between McCoy and Kirk and, and Kirk's quarters for a second. Sure. Because in addition to the scene itself, I think the thing that I really appreciated about it was the cinematography and the shots and the camera angles. Because there's that scene where, where Kirk is standing next to the wardrobe and just off to the left, and you can see McCoy in the mirror. And yep. I thought that that was really fascinating as a as a directorial choice because they're having this conversation, and, and Kirk is, you know, spilling out, you know, um, his, his, his soul and his guts. Mm-hmm. And instead of it being a two-shot with McCoy and Kirk face-to-face, there's sort of that separation with the mirror. And I thought that that was really kind of interesting. I thought yeah. it actually added a weight to the scene that it might not have had otherwise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, uh, to play on that, it, it, I think that sometimes when you have a back and forth of camera angles, one we're, we're looking at one person, then we're looking at another, it, take, it does take away from possibly the – message in that scene because there's a lot of camera bouncing going on. So yeah, it was, it was very, it was very well played out. Another, another nod to uh, the editing team or whoever decided to do it that way, whether it was Vic or anyone else on the staff. uh, It kind of reminded me a little bit of how they would do some of the stuff in the original series too. I agree with that. I thought that, you know, from a, um, a a continuity standpoint, as far as production, I thought it at least stayed true to that too. Yeah, I agree. Um, I'm really looking forward to Scotty's engine room. I gotta say, uh, yeah. <laughs> they we it's funny. I've been reading some reviews online uh, over the course of the week about how people are talking about how hey this, they got that Kickstarter or the Kirkstarter and they got Scotty's engine room and uh, they didn't really get Scotty's engine room for this episode. It was CGI'd. You could tell it was CGI'd, and it makes me look forward to the actual construction. I think. Uh, well, but uh, it was it was obviously CGI, but I don't think it was too distracting. Not like in oh, a... Oh, no, not at all. Not, not at like all. in a, a Star Wars, you know, Phantom Menace kind of way. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that it was at least a good representation of the engine room. Yep. Um, and it was quick. I get that. Um, I thought that the other CGI for like uh, the mission where Edith Keeler was and, and Miramani's... Um, uh, tent or whatever you want to call it, I guess. Um, I thought those were all nice too. I thought that... Um, yeah. They were they were done rather artistically, and I thought that it it, it certainly looked good. It, I don't think it took away from the quality of the scene or from the quality right. of the episode itself. Right, and and one of the things that I'm going to look forward to when we actually have the engine room is it won't be behind everybody. They're going to be able to interact with it. They're going to jump on the fence like Kirk would used to do, and he'd be <laughs> fighting someone and climbing the ladder and everything. So I, I think that'll be good when we see that. Uh, hopefully, next episode, uh, if not. Probably episode six. I'm not sure, but we'll find out. Here's hoping. So do you have any other, you know, one-off notes before we sort of get to what we thought about it? Yeah. Um, did you ever watch Doctor Who when you were growing up? Not a whole lot. I had a hard time getting into it because even in the 80s, 
Unfortunately, yeah. when Colin Baker would have been, you know, part of the the production at one point, the special effects were about as good as Lost in Space in the '60s, <laughs> yeah. and that kind of took yeah. me out of it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, the, I have never seen a Doctor Who episode that did not star Tom Baker, so I didn't really know a lot about Colin Baker, who was uh, the fifth Doctor, I think, fifth or sixth. But he was, of course, the minister in this episode. He was great. I he thought was. he. he he brought a lot to that that part. He had some humor. Um, I'm sure people that are Doctor Who fans were just loving seeing him on screen, and and uh, I got to give him a, a big salute too. He did a good job. I'm sure they'll correct you on which Doctor he was too. Yes, <laughs> and that you can <laughs> well, reach I'm, Dan at TrekGeeks at Starfleet.com. Thank you. <laughs> you know, I get all my information from you, Bill. So that's not true at all. <laughs> Mr. Stump the Geek. Um, no, I thought it was great to see Colin Baker on screen again. I thought he did a, a great job with the character, with what they gave him to do. He added some humor, which I thought was wonderful. Yep. Um, you know, the, the do you want me to throw the console at them line, I thought was hilarious. Yep. It, was, uh, it was done in, in a very Star Trek way, which I truly appreciated. Yep. Um, I guess the other quick note that I will say in regards to the episode is... Um, <clears throat> We talked to Kat Roberts a while back and, and, and really enjoyed talking to her. And although Kat has confirmed that she will not be in Episode 5, right. I was very happy to see that your thoughts of possibly Lieutenant Palmer dying in the episode was very wrong. <laughs> mea culpa, mea culpa, <laughs> mea maxima culpa. Kat, <laughs> I love you. You're wonderful. Um, you... Uh, you you survived the episode, and hopefully you'll be back for another day on, on STC, and I'll be very happy when that happens, and please don't hold it against me. <laughs> we'll, do our, we'll do our best, um, but the, the cat's out of the bag, so to speak, and, uh, oh, and uh, oh, that was oh, bad. That was I don't bad. even know if we actually talked about what you thought on one of the podcasts, but I needed to bring it up that, yeah, Bill thought she was going to die, ladies and gentlemen. I did. I, not only did I think she was going to die, I thought that somebody else might die too, and that it probably would be a member of the crew. I thought that the white iris would signify death. Well, I was partially right. It did. But in this case, it actually signified loneliness based on the painting. So, right. Right. I, I so, can't win yeah, them all. Um, those are pretty much uh, the majority of the notes that I had in, re- in relation to the episode. Um, I could probably have another five or six pages if I really wanted to delve into it. But um, what did you think, man? I mean, I mean, we've both seen it a lot over the last week, week and couple days. What are your thoughts on it? Well, I want to, I want to preface my thoughts by saying, you know, we poked a little fun at the episode in the recap, talked about the password and, you know, the backup console and some of the, the technical things, you know, uh, in a slightly comedic sense. But we did mean those with all kinds of affection and love. And we weren't really trying to dig on the episode. We we're just having fun during the recap. Um, that said, I thought it was phenomenal. You know, when we first had Michelle on as our first guest, you know, several months ago, she said that it was an emotional story. And those words rang true you know, a hundred percent when I watched it, the scene toward the end where Kirk is with what would have been his daughter. I have to tell you, man, I had tears in my eyes. I, um, I was moved by it. I thought it was effective. I thought it was an incredible story. I thought that Kirk had a chance to deal with these things and move past them, but they would inform his decisions and his person later. Um, the, the whole Star Trek five, I need my pain thing. 
Um, but I thought that it was an outstanding episode. It was an incredibly character-driven episode. Um, I, I think that it, um, I think that it is equal up there with the best of Star Trek Continues. And I think that over time, if I watch it a few more times, I might think it it might surpass the top spot. Um, because I yeah. do like the the emotion in it. I do like what it meant for Kirk. I do like yep. the notions it dispelled. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I like you. Thought it was fantastic. My favorite word. I know. Um, you can't really. Can you compare this one with the other three? Probably not, because each one has its own distinct meaning and and the way it was done. But I think this is the best one out of out of the four when it comes to a, a Trek story, and that's something that. All of the people that we've had on the show have said is after these scenes were done, they would say that is so Star Trek. And it is. Every scene was so Star Trek. And one of the things I'm going to say about my my favorite scene, uh, one of my top two favorite scenes, you just talked about it also, was the scene with Kirk's daughter. I'm going to go out on a limb here and I'm going to say that that scene may be the most powerful and emotional Minute and a half to two minutes in Star Trek history for me, more so than Spock dying in the Wrath of Khan. I didn't cry when Spock died in the Wrath of Khan. Yeah. You know when I became emotional? It was when the Enterprise was destroyed in Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. Yep. For me, that was the touchstone. Like, oh my God, this is the ship of dreams from my childhood. And mm-hmm. there it is imploding upon itself. It's blowing up. Yep. Um, the, the, the way that, that Vic Mignogna did that scene was what hit me. It hit me harder more. It hit me more than the way that the, that, um, his, his daughter was and how she acted and giving him the gift and hugging him and stuff. Just the way that, that, uh, Vic handled that scene with the, the look of emotion, the waves of emotion that you could see coming over him as that scene was filmed, I think was the one that got me. Uh, the most, and that's why I found that to be the most heartbreaking but touching scenes at the same time. I agree with that, and I think that you know um, the scenes, you know, or the scene where Todd mind melds with with Vic, or I should say, Spock mind melds with Kirk. Um, you you really get a sense that Spock understands it at that point too. Um, and I thought that that was really well done. I think there are dozens of fantastic, your word, character moments in this episode. And it all adds up to something that that is, at the end of the day, Star Trek. It is. It's not a misfire. Yeah. It's, a, it's a wonderful episode at every turn. Yeah. It tells a great story and advances these characters, you know, in a way that, that is respectful to the original series. And I think it is an outstanding job. Yeah, it's gonna it's gonna rank up there as, as one of the uh, uh, probably most watched, I dare to say, um, of the four episodes so far. Uh, we've been seeing some reviews coming in, and they've all been great. They all say that uh, uh, it's one of the best, and it is a Star Trek episode. It is a core Star Trek episode, and that's what's important. Vic talked about this, I think, a little bit when we talked to him about the movies having to have plot lines for every character, and that would take away from from what the core of Star Trek is. And, and he thought that that happened with the spinoff series. Each each subsequent spinoff kind of took a little bit away. This one is right in your face, Star Trek. It is. And, you know, there are times when the original series didn't sync up with its own canon. And if we're going to nitpick, 
there is one element that we both kind of took issue with um, where it gets a detail wrong as far as continuity. Do you want to delve into that a little bit? Yeah, I will I will delve into it and I will also preface it by saying I am planning on asking Vic about this personally. Um there may be a reason and it just may be something that we're not seeing, but I thought it was very interesting that when um McCoy and Kirk were sitting talking about what happened on the Farragut, Kirk said that it's the event that took place seven years ago. But in the episode Obsession he told McCoy to look at the record tapes of the USS Farragut from an incident that took place 11 years earlier when Kirk was a lieutenant. So the math doesn't seem right to me. If if this episode is taking place in season or year four of the original mission, it would have been 12 years ago or 13, depending on when it took place. So right. the seven years really confused me. Um, and I'm I'm wondering if that was just an, an unfortunate error or if there's actually something behind that that we just don't know yeah and i'm not sure either i think we'll probably ask him about that and maybe update on a future podcast maybe if it comes back or you know if we get an email response because he's usually pretty good about those um yeah no i i thought it was phenomenal you thought it was phenomenal um i don't know about you man but it makes me want episode five now and we've got to wait till i don't know late in the year i think yeah, I'm not sure of the schedule of it. I know that I know that he told us that they already filmed the Enterprise scenes of it when they were filming episode four. So that part's done. But the rest of it, has that been done because it's going to be off planet? Has that been done? Where is it getting done? And how long is it going to take for post-production to complete? So yeah, I'm, uh, tomorrow is not soon enough. I want to watch it when soon we get done talking. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've seen this episode 10 times. I've seen it nine. Perhaps some of you have seen it out there more than we have. Did you like the episode? What did you think of it? Did you catch some of the same things that we did? What did you think of our take on the episode? All valid questions that you may want to send to us. And Dan, how might those people get those questions to us? Sure. Um, we want to hear those questions. I think this is one of the, the what's this episode, what, 17 are we 17. on? 18? 17. 17. And this may be the one that I'm looking forward to getting feedback on the most. I want to hear, like you just said, what do you think of the episode? What do you think of our thoughts of the episode? So send us a tweet, uh, an email, look, look, look us up on Facebook. On Twitter, Facebook, and Skype, our handle is Trek Geeks. Um, and you can send us an email if you want at trekgeeks at starfleet.com, or you can leave us a voicemail by calling 508-784-1701. We really want to hear from you on this. Um, if you want to send uh, Bill an individual tweet, his handle is at trekgeekbill. And if you want to send me something, my uh, handle is at dcdds9. Um, we'll be really happy to share your thoughts and comments about White Iris or anything else. Um, if you leave us a message, we will be using those me- those uh, notes and comments and everything in a future episode. You can guarantee it. Oh, we absolutely will. And as for that, that puts a, a finish on episode 17, our spoiler-tastic coverage of the White Iris. Um, next week, Dan, we are actually talking to somebody fairly interesting. Yeah, it's um, everyone or everyone who's listening to the podcast knows that in addition to Star Trek Continues, we are huge fans of Prelude to Axanar. Um, they did a great job with a History Channel type of 21-minute documentary. They're going to be making a full-length feature, and we have the executive producer and Captain Garth himself 
Alec Peters is going to join us to talk about the project. Uh, can't wait. It's going to be a great discussion, and we hope you join us next week. Um, until then, live long and prosper. Irises. <laughs> Didn't expect that, did you? Not one bit. <laughs> Okay. All right. Yeah, that's good. Good. All right. Okay. Great. Great. I want to Thanks. A couple of things that I also want to bring up is I've been wrestling with whether or not to bring up the, in my opinion, huge mistake that they made in the discussion of the uh, issue with the USS Farragut, which was 11 years earlier when it was in season two, but they say it's seven years earlier in w- this episode. That would be the thing I would bring up during the notes section. Yeah. Yeah. So not during the recap itself. Oh, no, no. No, during the recap. No, no. During the recap, it won't be anything like that. It'll just be the recap. See that you don't. With my mellifluous voice. Say that again. Manif- ma- I can't. <laughs> That's not happening. Mellifluous? Mellifluous. Mellifluous. Rec William from a Wifluous. God. <laughs> Requiem for Melifluisla. <laughs> I am Brahms. <laughs> that took you a second. No, that was pretty good. <laughs> I was like, where's he going with this? I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Cool. You're, you're cool. Um. <laughs> oh, why don't we do I, this why don't we wow. record your notes separately and then go back and record the intro okay because there will probably be a, a slight music break before your recap and then coming out of your recap there will be another slight musical break to take us into the analysis does that sound okay? That sounds wonderful. You look terrified. I am terrified. This is going to be a. This is a lot of just me. That's, believe me, it's more than I can handle. Wah, 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 wah. I'm going to do it as Mr. Magoo. Hey, the Enterprise in an orbit. Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> <clears throat> Or we can we can do it after the intro. We we can do the intro now, and I'll just cut in no, music. No, doesn't matter. No, quit quit whining. I'm not whining. I'm just I'm ready. <clears throat> That's a first. Is that my click track? Do I get to start singing anytime now? <laughs> my name is Bill. <laughs> What are you singing? My name is Bill. What what is that?
Pff, it's nothing. It never really got very far. Wow. It was like a full... <laughs> You've been talking to my mother. Wow. <clears throat> was that her? Huh. Really? <laughs> the woman's 85 and she's a saint, mister. A saint. I am sure. <clears throat> I am sure. All right. All right. I'll start with the intro. All right. Fine. Coconut. <laughs> <laughs>